It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. People across the country recognize Mary Louise Kelly by her voice. She's a co-host of the NPR news show, All Things Considered, and she's also a parent. Whoever in this room is not working outside the home, or hasn't, or may not, or is toying with this, like, if you'd had me up on this stage 15 years ago, I would have been, I would have been judgy about that. And I now look back and think, you know, we're all making the very best choices we can make in the moment for us and for our families. For almost two decades, Kelly has wrestled with whether the radio studio is the right place for her to be every afternoon. And then all of a sudden, she realized she'd run out of time for wrestling. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations presented at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Working parents don't have a lot of easy answers. Kelly tried all kinds of job configurations while her kids were growing up and never found the perfect fit for both her career and her family. But in her latest book, It Goes So Fast, she shares what she learned with certainty. The time with your kids at home will come to an end. Author and podcast host Kelly Corrigan talks to Kelly about her tough choices as a mom and the external pressures that make it harder. Here's Corrigan. Tonight we're talking about a nonfiction book. It's called It Goes So Fast. Have you heard of this? Yeah. Yeah. Have you read it? Yeah. Okay. How many people here are empty nesters? Okay, and how many women here were working moms? Still are. Still are. God bless you. Okay, so this is a book fundamentally for me about opportunity costs. Because every day at 4 o'clock, two (laughs) things in your life happen. What are those two things? Every day, every weekday at 4 p.m., I come on the air and tell you from NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And here's the news, four o'clock sharp. My sons, who uh, are teenagers and whose animating passion in life is soccer, and they live for their soccer games, their varsity soccer games are weekdays, and they tend to be at four o'clock, exactly. And um, technology makes possible many once impossible things, but they have not figured out a way that I can host all things considered from the bleachers while screaming my head off. So I, for years, um, have missed their games. Almost all of them, and I hate that. Um, You know, their dad makes it, other moms make it, they come home and tell me about it. And I always think, you know, next year I'm gonna figure this out. Next year I'm gonna find a way. Um, But there is no way to be in two places at once, and unless all things considered goes off air, Um, or I get fired, or some other unforeseen event happens, there is no way to be in two places at once. And that came into my mind in a very... uh, Silly, sounds strange to say unexpected, but it kind of crept up on me that ninth grade would turn into 10th grade, would turn into 11th grade, and suddenly my oldest was going into senior year and I was out of next times. And yeah. there were no more next years. And if I was going to figure it out and make a different choice, I needed to do it now. Yeah. And you were also sort of in the middle of a hell of a time. Your father died. Mm-hmm. Your marriage ended. Mm-hmm. Your kid left for college. How was that goodbye? 
So this oldest son, who uh, was in senior year of high school last year, so I was writing last year in real time, he graduated. He just finished his freshman year at University of Chicago. He's happy. He loves it. So there's a, a happy ending for now there. We'll see where we go next. The goodbye, I have to say, having, having you know, Pre-lived it a few times. Pre-lived it and, and just wanted to so embrace every single second of his senior year and just gaze adoringly across the dinner table and treasure like every non-communicative dinner where I'm <laughs> every trying <drinks. laughs> to pull, like, yes. what happened today? Nothing. Yeah. Um, you know, savoring that. I think some, I'm curious if this is true in y'all's houses. In my house, some switch flipped when he graduated high school and then there's three months before he's off to college where he became a total nightmare. And I think there is some evolutionary programming that you have to annoy each other so much that in that summit, you're separating. You know? yeah. He's doing the necessary work to make you so grateful. <laughs> when you get to college drop off, you're like, bye, and I'm crying, but also, thank God. Right, right, right. Enough of you. Yeah, he announced. I think they say that they, like, they shit the nest before they leave. Like I, have, you, have you ever heard that expression? That is a more don't concise way of breaking yes, news on that. That's a concise yeah. way of putting it. He just announced to me, I don't have a curfew anymore. And uh -huh. I was like, well, I kind of do. I won't in college. Well, in college, you'll do your thing. In my house, you will. So we spent the summer fighting about that until I finally thought, he's right. Who cares? Yeah. I think I'm done. Yeah. It's interesting to me, I came across this study in preparation for tonight that women who work are happier and healthier as moms. And I wondered if there were specific reasons. Like, for instance, there is a real shot at the gratification of feeling competent at work that I find is more rare on the home front, that I would feel like I nailed it that I did an award-winning job today at, <laughs> at 21 Crest Road. You know what right. I mean? Yep. And you talk about competence in the book. Towards the end, I noted that you pulled in Atul Gawande quote. Atul Gawande, who many of you know, wrote um, Being Mortal, another great book. a physician and a writer and a staff writer at The New Yorker. And he talks about the satisfaction of competence, and he talks about it in light of his profession and being a surgeon and being a doctor, and the satisfaction of being very good at your job. Um, in the way that, you know, for him, he's a surgeon. If he compares, I think, to a, a carpenter or someone who can refinish an antique chest beautifully, and the satisfaction of finishing that and knowing somebody else couldn't do that, I did that, I brought value to this thing and created it today. And that resonates for me. I will say, um, you know, if we'd been up on this stage 10 years ago, I would have struggled to say I'm really good at my job. I'm not sure I thought that. Um, I wanted to be good at my job. I was trying really damn hard every day to be good at my job. But I'm not sure I thought I'd gotten there. Do you think you were wrong in your assessment? Now, looking back, do you think you were too hard on yourself? Or did you actually I think we're all too hard on ourselves all the time. Yeah. Um, all the time. And part of writing this is, you know, I have been very good at beating myself up where whatever choice I was making. And I, in the 19 years I've been a mom, have been the all in in a, you know, very prominent career and unreachable for weeks because I'm in a war zone covering it. I've done that. 
I have been completely at home and not working at all outside the home. I have been everything in between, trying to do part-time, trying to, you know, on-ramp, off-ramp, write, which is a job, but you have more flexibility. Like, I've done all of it. Um, and no matter where I am on that scale, I'm always thinking, I'm failing to show up somewhere. <laughs> I'm which not doing true, everything I want to like, be doing. There aren't, there are only 24 hours in a day. Yes. You can't do it all. But part of you know, what I learned as I, as I wrote and thought about it and reflected on the decisions I made that got to this point was I was doing so much better than I thought I had. And had I extended to myself a fraction of the grace that I would extend to you or you or any of you, I can see you know, all the great things you're all doing. Like y'all are nailing it every day, whatever choices you're making. Um, and probably if we could all be a little easier on ourselves, mm -hmm. I would be a, would be a lot happier. Well, you had a really funny moment with James where mm. you sort of dared to ask the question that moms are afraid to ask, which is like, did I ruin you? Was it too hard? <laughs> Should I have stayed home? Like these huge questions. My daughter once said very casually, I could never do what you do. And another one said, I'm definitely not going to work when my kids are little. Which was like, okay, <laughs> you know, freaking out upstairs alone in the room and pacing with my husband saying, I ruined it. But you asked him, and what did yeah. he say? Well, I'm a reporter, so <laughs> even writing a memoir, I want, I'm like reporting and trying to ask the questions that might get me to whatever the, some truth or version of the truth might be. And so I did corner James in the hallway outside his bedroom one day and asked what's kind of the central question of the book. Was there ever a moment where you really needed me and I didn't come? And he looked at me for a long time, like a long time, Kelly, like a really, like my heart is sinking. He is about to just let me have it. And then he finally looked up and said, I'm sure there were times, but I can't remember. And would you give me 15 bucks for Chipotle? <laughs> okay, like if those are the only reparations you're demanding for whatever I've done to you, fair. I also, just to push back a little bit on, we're both working moms, like we've made that choice. I spend a lot of the time, I spend a lot of time in the book writing about my mother who made very different choices in her life and did not work outside the home and raised my brother and me. And I have never known a harder working, more productive person who has enabled me to make choices that I could not have made otherwise because she was so present in helping me with my family and my decisions and who said to me, you know, you can go do anything you want to do. You can go be anything you want to be, make whatever choices you want to make. But I just want to acknowledge for whoever in this room is not working outside the home or hasn't or may not or is toying with this, like, if you'd had me up on the stage 15 years ago, I would, have been, I would have been judgy about that. And I now look back and think, you know, we're all making the very best choices we can make in the moment for us and for our families. And I have phenomenal respect for what my mother did. I mean, it's a real- continues to do. It's a real call for intellectual humility because there's so any <clears throat> one of us could say there's so much that goes on behind closed doors between a kid and what their specific needs are and what their invisible needs are, yeah. where they're sort of shining publicly, but you know that this is a time where they need more of you. Yeah. 
and the world can't see that, like we just have to assume when we're on the verge of making a judgment about someone else that there are many, many things that we do not and cannot know about what's going on with their kids and what they need or don't need in that moment. Yep. So a lot of times when I'm introduced, they say, oh, she's a writer and a podcaster and she has a TV show. And then they feel kind of compelled to say, she's also a mother, a wife, a daughter, a sister, and a friend. <laughs> and I've never ever in my whole life heard a man get that little thing tagged on to the end. It would be totally bizarre. <laughs> And I just wonder, like, what do you think society needs to know about a woman before they'll really listen to her and be comfortable with her? Oh, I mean, we would be here all night. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I know I, on my Twitter bio, if you pull me up on Twitter right now, I had on there, you know, host of NPR's All Things Considered, and author of this, and there were a few other things on there. And I was giving a talk like this one night and somebody said, how, do, how come you don't have, you know, mom on there? Because you keep telling us that's your number one job. And like, you know, when push comes to shove, you put the kids over the work. So where's mom? And I thought, yeah, like, where's mom? And I, I've changed my Twitter bio and mom is now the number one thing. And I'm, that feels the most central part of my identity. It just has for 19 years and um, part of what, was scaring me and continues to scare me because now my youngest is about to be a senior in high school this coming year, is um, how those identities shift. Um, I will always be a mom. It will always be my most important job, but it's not a job that's, you know, they're not going to be around for me to do it <laughs> like I know. most of the time. And I don't know what the answer is. I tell a story in there about getting a, a call when I was part of the Pentagon Press Corps um, and how school, it was from the school nurse back in Washington and how school nurses always call the mom first. Like well, let's just pause default. and say she was on a Black Hawk, Black Hawk helicopter in Iran. Iraq. <laughs> Iraq. Iraq. And she got the phone call, your kid's sick. Yeah. Well, and I'll just tell that story and then I'll backfill. The story was, yes, I was in Iraq. Um, I was part of the press pool covering the defense secretary on a visit there. And for him to move around, it's not safe for him even in a motorcade um, with security. So they move him around by Blackhawks. So if you're one of the reporters trailing him, you're in a Blackhawk as well, in full body armor and the whole thing. And the phone rings and I have to push back my bulletproof helmet to answer it, and it is the school nurse in Washington telling me that my four-year-old is sick, and where am I? And I'm like, and You wouldn't you know. believe it if I told you. <laughs> when can I on. get there? Like, yeah. I, you know, when can I get there, lady? It's like at least two days from now. Like, you know. um, and she started yelling and said, I don't mean to bring him home. I mean, he's really sick. He's struggling to breathe. Where are you? We need to get him to the hospital. And I, um, <laughs> I was struggling to answer her um, and try to do the time zone calculation of like, where is the nanny? Where is my husband? Where is, and the phone line went dead because um, the helicopter was taking off and it was a couple of hours before I could get a line through again to find out that he's okay. 
And I, that night, um, cried myself to sleep in <laughs> this trailer parked behind one of Saddam Hussein's old palaces and just thought, what the hell am I doing? Yeah. My four-year-old is really sick and he needs me and I am halfway around the world and this does not work. And um, on the plane home from that trip, I started writing what became my first book because I was desperately searching for I wanted. I want to work. I want to do something that feels meaningful. But I want to be around a little bit more, um, and be home when they get home from school, and be able to take that call. Um, and my son is 17 now, and he's fine, and he's healthy. But I took six years away from the newsroom where it felt like it was the right thing for my family. Um, but I will say another thing I observed on that trip is why do the school nurses always call the moms first? Um, I don't know that a single man on that trip went home and quit their job, you know, of the press pool of the military officers on the Secretary of Defense's plane with us. And I don't, and I wrestle with that. I don't know the full answers to it. I, um, one of the book events I did for this book was with Ann Patchett, the novelist um, at her bookstore in Nashville. She has chosen not to have children and she's very public and intentional and has written about that decision that she doesn't feel she would be able to do her job in the way she wants to do it. We love you. At least it's NPR. Yeah, you, I mean, you do need to buy 10 books now, but if it happens again, it'll be 20, okay? All right. Um, together, folks. Anyway, just to end this, Ann Patchett was pushing me really hard on why did you take the call? Why do you want, the, like, why do they even have your number? Why are you taking the call when they could be calling your husband, they could be calling the nanny? And I thought, I realize this is utterly contradictory. I want to be on that plane in the body armor in Iraq, and I want to get the call from the school nurse. Yeah. I want them both. I can't imagine not taking that call. Yeah. I don't know how to explain it, but. You it probably is. don't need to explain it. Does she need to explain that? Does that not make sense to everybody here? It's interesting, I feel like, it, it over, it's oversimplifying, but it's kind of like a third, a third, a third. Like you're someone's daughter, you're someone's mother, and then you're, so what happens next? Yeah. And I think about this, I am also an empty nester, and I, I think about the sort of trajectory for most parents is that you're essential, and then you become optional. Mm -hmm. And then you become like, your mom's coming? Oh, how long is she staying? <laughs> no, don't tell me. I'm sorry, but at least 50% of the time when I was like talking to my girlfriends <clears throat> at drop-off and they would say their mom was coming, like people in the circle would cringe a little. They'd be like, she is. <laughs> and it was like, is this what we're working towards? Like, is this the road I'm on? So what do you think about this third act of your life? Yeah. I am excited and terrified. I, um, I write about you know, how an interesting exercise is to think of your life as a play. And for me, act one, like, you know, just think about the kind of, I mean, this is appropriate because we're in an opera house in a theater. What, like how big a cast would you need? What are the costumes? Mm -hmm. Where does it start? How many acts do you need? Mm -hmm. And um, when I started thinking about mine, I was thinking act one is probably my, my own youth. 
you know, being born, growing up, going to school, etc. Act two would be like starting, getting a job, finding the man I would marry, um, buying a house, doing all the grown-up things you do. Um, and act also, you know, like then having kids, which changed everything. Um, and now as you know, I prepared a transition to a time when they are not going to be demanding, every, they're already obviously not demanding every second of my time, but they're not going to be just with me in the it's house. It's more the credit card than the time, <laughs> I, I find. I have both my children are <laughs> away from home right now and I'm monitoring where they are based on the Chipotle charges <laughs> coming in now from multiple states. They're on states. a Chipotle tour. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I don't know. I. Um, it feels like a much more open question than I expected that it would at this point, but I'm kind of thinking about, I'm 52, I'm good at my job, I kind of know what I'm doing, I still have the energy to do it, but if I'm going to do something else and have a different chapter, this doesn't feel like a terrible moment to think about that. Mm -hmm. And throwing that door open and thinking, okay, well if I'm considering that, where do I want to be doing it? Who do I want to be living life with at that point? I don't mm -hmm. know. I don't know the answers to any of those. Yeah. It's interesting. A, a feeling that I had, I, I didn't plan to work. So I, I thought I would be just like my mom. And then I got very sick, and then I wrote a book, and the book did well. And that gave me all these opportunities. And I took them all and made more from them. And I, one thing that I felt was soothed by the security of making my own money, because I feel like if I live for like 40 more years, I'm going to need so much money. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like 40 years is like a tremendous amount of funding. And um It's a lot of Chipotle. And I'm still shopping at the Gap. Like I'm not I'm not going to the boutiques here in Aspen. I'm I've, And um Do you have you felt that satisfaction of like having your own income and your own career and your vocation and that kind of like individual identity? Yes. Yes. But these are also interesting choices because you just mentioned you wrote a book, sounds like somewhat to your surprise, it did very well, and that it starts opening more doors. And, you know, it's the funny thing, you, you do well in your career because you, you want to, you want to succeed, you want to please your, please your boss, you want to create something of value in, in the world, but the reward for doing good work isn't that you get to be done. No. <laughs> and finish it, it's that other people notice and they ask you to do more of it. Um, George Saunders writes about this, and I quote him in the book, he you know, talks about how the mountain keeps climbing as you grow it, and it, it, uh, the mountain keeps, keeps growing oh, as you climb it, thank you. Um, and how you do well in high school so that you can get into a good college, and then you try to do well in college so you can get into a good grad school, and so that you can get a good job, and you, know, I mean, you see where this is going. And I think about that in my own life. Um, as a journalist, what that looks like is the interviews I get to do are higher profile, and I get more time on air, and then I get asked to come do things like this, which are amazing, and then somebody says, well, maybe you could write a book about this, so you do, Yeah. and it does well, and then somebody asks you to come on their podcast, ahem, thank yeah. you. <laughs> um, but the mountain keeps growing as you climb it, and it can be very easy to be thinking about just the next thing, the next thing, the next success, the next success. To what end? Mm -hmm. What's the goal? Mm -hmm. How much does it need to be? 
And I think about that when I look at my children. So much, I feel that so deeply for them when I was college touring with James and we visited the University of Chicago where he eventually ended up going. You know, he's in high school. He hasn't even applied to college yet. This is fall of his senior year. And he's worried about, you know, what the stats are for how many people are getting into good law schools and should we go, go look at the law school while we're there. And I'm thinking, you poor kid, like you haven't even gotten into college. Who cares about law school? Don't you like, like leave it be. But I think I was doing that when I was 18. Yeah. To what end? Yeah. I don't know. I'm sure you've given graduation speeches. I've given a few and one of them was just like today counts. It's not always about tomorrow. Yeah. Like today should have some features that are memorable and meaningful to you in and of themselves. It cannot all be like betting on some future day, but you know, you're in a highly competitive career. Like there's got to be a thousand people who want your job, right? Who are wonder they're listening to you on all these podcasts, thinking, "I wonder if she's going to leave all things considered. How can I shine up my resume and get that job?" How do you think about vocation and how it competes with other options? Well, I will say, I just re-upped my contract, so I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> so settle down. Calm down, settle down, people. Back yep. off. That's right. Um, How long is your contract? <laughs> no comment. Um, I will say, one of, the, one of the many joys of this job, hosting All Things Considered, it is the first job I've ever had that's not a stepping stone to something else. There's no other job at NPR that I want, that this is like, you know, gonna get me there. Um, I can't actually think of another job in, in broadcasting or journalism that I would rather do. I love that I get to sit in the anchor chair. I mean, my job is on a weekday morning, at 9.30 we hold a morning editorial meeting, and everybody who's working on the show that day, producers, editors, hosts, everybody comes and it's the pitch meeting and you just, it's, some days it's structured. If there's a big obvious lead and we're trying to figure out what are we gonna do about, you know, this insurrection underway in Russia, we're focused. Other days, it can, it can be the most random ideas you've ever heard for half an hour. But the central organizing principle is thinking, what am I curious about today? What do I want to know? What are my questions about what's happening in our country or in the world? Who could answer them? And then there's a whole team of producers who go find that person and bring them to the studio to talk to me. Phenomenal. How crazy fun is that? Yeah. It's so fun. So I love that about my job and feel very, very lucky yeah. that I get to do it and that it's been a revelation to have a job that it's not in the service of getting me to the next thing. Yeah. I'm just trying to enjoy it in this moment. Are your kids so proud of you? Do, can you feel it? I mean, I'm sure they are, but is it palpable to That's you? That's so nice. No, I think, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't mean they're not proud, but I do. I, <laughs> no, not at all. I can't feel anything They're into sports. I call them, I, I, I'm, my sweet spot is national security and foreign policy. And if you throw me in into an interview with Bibi Netanyahu about settler policy. I'm like, I got this. No, like, like, I'm totally in the zone. If you want me to do an interview about something happening in the NFL, I am utterly terrified because I have no idea. And I'm calling my 17-year-old. And he's ball. like, yeah. I'm like, I need three. I got Steph Curry coming up. Like, oh you know, my God, you got to you talk to Steph Curry. I haven't yet. That's possibly in the works. Like, he has a documentary coming out, so I may get to talk to him. If I do. 
what you will hear me asking are the questions that my 17-year-old has instructed me must be asked, because that that's like the terrifying thing to me. Steph Curry is kind of actually an interesting place to go with this conversation because... See, I'm lost. I've no, I, I know that he's no, an no, NBA no, player. This is relevant. Like, I'm done. Okay, You'll be here, here with me. Okay. So I, I've wanted to ask this, and it, it's such a dicey question, and I know you're not going to want to answer it, but like, are mothers and fathers different beasts? Is it just a different job? Is it a different experience? And Steph Curry's so interesting because he was this, you know, incredibly successful male athlete, one of the most successful athletes in the history of the country. And he had his daughters climbing all over him during press conferences. So he wasn't tatted up and like cool for like going to nightclubs and, you know, finding the ladies. He was cool because he had this adorable daughter who was like grabbing the microphone away from him. And it was, to me, it was an interesting moment of someone's personal life and their professional life merging in front of our eyes. Right. And of course the press loves it, right? To see this athlete holding this little girl. There's not that many opportunities. If a woman did that, I sometimes wonder if the press would love it quite as much. I mean, when Serena Williams talks about her daughter, I think people roll their eyes. So I wondered if we could sort of tiptoe into that territory about like the differences between being a father and being a mother, by and large, and why you think more men don't stay home and, and, and women work. Yeah, I don't know. You're not going to answer it? Is I, that it? I, I, that was a long lead up for I don't know. <laughs> I'm just saying, Mary Louise, <laughs> this is my interview. I am the captain now. <laughs> I don't know the answer to it. I'm not dodging your question. I don't know the answer why. I mean, obviously, biologically, there have historically been reasons why women were tied closer to the home. And obviously, our society has perpetuated that. I know, you know, in my early days in the newsroom when I was a young mom, my boss, uh, who was kind of a legendary foreign editor of NPR and a man and had won his Pulitzers in the Middle East and you know had a family, um, but was running around Beirut most of the time. And I don't have to assume I know that it was his wife who was handling the, the home front. And um, I remember one morning editorial meeting where we're planning the day and figuring out assignments and I you know, sheepishly um, raised my hand and said, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, I can't take that story because I have to cut out at two today because my son has a pediatrician appointment I need to take him. And this gruff editor was kind of like, really? Can, like, can you be back by three? I'm like, no, really? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> have you ever taken a kid to the pediatrician? Exactly. <laughs> no. That's not how it goes. No, is, is the answer. He's never <laughs> taken a kid. So he's giving me a little bit of grief. And finally, he's like, well, fine. If you're you know, in early tomorrow and you can file two stories tomorrow, I'll be fine. Next hand goes up. It's a guy who says, yeah, I also have to leave early because my dog has been limping and I got to get him to the vet. And the editor's like, oh, your poor dog. Oh my God, is he okay? Can you get the editor? Oh my God. And I'm looking like around the room like, are the rest of you are hearing this? this? Am I yeah. insane? Like, really? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what the, I can't, I'm not going to venture into the like root causes because I genuinely don't know. I do know what I believe the answer is and I will ground this in an interview I did this spring um, with a woman named Sabrina Siddiqui who is one of the White House correspondents for the Wall Street Journal 
she is a relatively new mom and she is still breastfeeding or was when I interviewed her. As White House correspondent, she is required to travel with the president and um, she had just returned from maternity leave with her first baby, still nursing, trying to figure it all out and gets called into the White House press secretary's office to be told the president is going on a top secret trip to Ukraine. This was earlier this year, I don't know if you remember this. It's so secret that we can't bring the usual press pool, but we're gonna bring two reporters, this guy who is the AP reporter and you. And she said, she sat there and thought, awesome. I mean, this is like the high profile assignment I've been fighting for and dreaming of. However, she said, my first question was how can I, I need to pump. I cannot leave my child and not pump it. I need to figure out how to get the refrigerated milk back out of a war zone we're going into Ukraine. <laughs> and the twist on this is that the White House press secretary at the time was Jen Psaki, who's a working mom. And the president of the White House Correspondents Association, who was the, you know, the other uh, journalist representing the whole press corps and helping with these arrangements in terms of logistics, is Tamara Keith, who is my colleague at NPR, who's a working mom. And so when Sabrina said, she said, I would, of course I want to go. It's my job. I would love to go, but I got a pump. And they were like, already on it. Been thinking about that. Wow. Secret services alerted. We're making, you know, logistical preparations. There's going to be a mini fridge on the train because they were training in and out from Poland. Um, and she did the whole damn trip and she filed from every stop and she's pumping and handing it off and the cold milk made it out with her and made it home back through Poland. And she started weeping and she's telling me about this on air and I'm weeping and I just said, how big of a difference did it make that the two women, the two people in the room as this is being discussed were working moms, she said it was everything. I think if it had been men in the room, it would A, never have occurred to them and if it had, they would have said, okay, well, obviously you can't go and you know, see you next time. Because God forbid a man glance over and see that action. <laughs> well, I mean, that alone, they... And I, I, as I was talking to her, thought, you know, my kids are now 17 and 19. It's been a while since I had to pump on deadline, but I have done, not in Ukraine, but pumped on many a deadline and um, thought, I would have recused myself from the trip. I wouldn't have had the chutzpah to ask. And I wonder if I would now, and I wonder if that's me, or I wonder if in 15 years we've come just far enough yeah. mm -hmm. for that to be okay. Yeah. And for her to have, no, I will have the support that if I ask for this, they're gonna help me figure it out. Yeah. And I will add further, it matters to have working mothers in a war zone filing that kind of story. I know from firsthand experience, <laughs> the kind of stories you see are different. The questions you want to ask that feel important are different. I've done it myself in Ukraine with the war. The, the people I was interviewing and the stories that felt worth telling were just different than they would have been to my 25 year old self or to a male colleague. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's the grandma like walking across the rubble with her bag and it's like, who are you? Or you told a really crushing story about a mom who was sort of desperate to get this, was it a stuffed animal? It was a live rodent. So the story was... <laughs> 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 the story was... 
in Ukraine last year, right before the invasion, so it's like early February of last year, um, among the people I interviewed was this woman named Hannah Hopko, who I was interviewing because she's a big, a big force in Ukrainian foreign policy. She had chaired um, their foreign relations committee in parliament. She was one of the leaders of the Euromaidan revolution in 2014. She's a national name and a total badass. And I wanted to hear her views on the invasion and sanctions and troop movements and what she wanted from NATO. And we're having this intense conversation about she really wanted um, control of the skies and for Biden to send planes and control the airspace. And she was making a hard case for it. And then she paused for a second and um, said, what's really stressing me out today, though, is that my 11-year-old daughter is asking for a guinea pig as a pet. And she has earned it. Like She got the grades she said she would, and I promised I would get her a guinea pig. But you know, we're packing like go bags in case we have to run, in case we have to evacuate. And I'm already trying to figure out how to get my parents and my 11-year-old daughter to safety if war actually comes to the country. And how do I evacuate a guinea pig and like the pellets and the cage and the <laughs> whole thing? And she starts crying. We're in this pizzeria in Kiev. And I just thought, oh man, I can relate. That would be what would be totally stressing me out. How do you That's evacuate motherhood. the pet? Yes. And we dug in on that, and that became the centerpiece of this interview. And I have thought more than once, you know, 25 year old me would have been like, what are you talking about, lady? Like, who cares about a random guinea pig when armies are on the march? Like, let's focus here on the important stuff. And mom me says, that's the important stuff. Right. The choices those people were having to make were unthinkable. Yeah. And war did come, as we know, and Kiev was bombed, and her daughter was evacuated out into Poland, and the guinea pig is still in Kiev. <laughs> and they've now adopted a puppy, a, a husky, whose mom was killed in the fighting um, over against the Russian border in Luhansk, and but the puppies survived, and they've adopted a puppy. And every time I interview her, and I've interviewed her now like five times, I interviewed her on the day of the invasion, and I've interviewed her since as the war has played out. And um, I always ask, how's your daughter? How's the guinea pig? And I know because I hear from all of you, um, listeners who have heard and been touched and who write to me every time something horrible or unexpected happens in Ukraine, which is a lot these days, and say, is the guinea pig okay? Is the yeah. daughter okay? Yeah. They're tracking this family because that's what matters. Yeah. I mean, everybody's had the experience of running through the airport looking for the binky. Yeah. <laughs> you know, where you see the father in like the full sweat and he's like, I have the, the binky. Um, we have a little time set aside for questions and then I thought we'd end with a reading if you're willing. I would love it. Okay. Questions. Question? Anything. So I love listening to both of you, obviously, but Mary Louise, since like 2016, I found it so painful to listen to the news every day. I'm wondering like, how you manage your own emotions and just like take care of yourself when you're just reporting on scary things constantly. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's one of the number one things we hear. Um, NPR's audience is down 
Um, and we were hoping that would be a pandemic dip because people's commuting patterns changed and people aren't driving to work and driving home listening to the radio the way they were. Um, but our audience has, has not fully recovered to before the pandemic and it has not grown. And when we ask why people tell us it's news fatigue, the, new, is, the news is so exhausting and depressing and um, it's just hard to make yourself engage. I will say, maybe a little counterintuitively, I actually feel much better about the world when I'm in the newsroom and on air because I can do something about it. There's maybe something terrifying or horrible happening in the world, but I know what my piece of it is, like what I need to go do um, is try to get answers to, you know, whatever answers to questions I can get and interview people and get it on the air. And often what you're hearing when you listen to me when there's breaking news is me learning along with you in real time what's happening. I mean, January 6th, I was stuck in a motel room in Atlanta <laughs> and all hell was breaking. I, you know, we just interviewed Senator Warnock and control of the Senate we thought was about to flip and I thought that was gonna be the big story of the day and as the afternoon began to unfold, I just thought, oh my God. And we went live and stayed live through the whole damn thing. And you would have very much heard me in real time trying to figure out what the heck is happening back in Washington. Um, and let's get to everybody we can on air to try to unpack this story. So I feel more in control when I'm in the news. I was, by contrast, flying here on Saturday when all hell is breaking loose in Russia mm -hmm. and I can do nothing about it. I have a long-standing visa request to get back to Russia, which they're not granting. And I was on a plane headed the opposite way of the action to come here and all I can do is follow on Twitter, which is next to useless because Vladimir Putin has decimated any independent media in Russia and Elon Musk has eliminated blue check marks so you can't tell who's tweeting what or whether you should believe it. Um, so I'm following along like the rest of you, you know, panicked on my connecting flight thinking what the hell is happening and then it all ended by the time I landed, surreal. So I find truly a sense of purpose um, in being in the newsroom and doing what I do. I will say we're having a lot of conversations as we gear up to 2024, what our coverage would look like, what role journalists should be playing in our democracy in this moment, how we can do it better, because we were certainly imperfect in 2016. Um, I don't know that we're ever gonna get to perfect, but I know that one thing I have tried to do and will continue to do is to be very transparent about the decisions we're making and why we cover the news in the way that we do. You know, we have huge discussions over, do we take Trump live? How do we fact check this in real time? We've decided we're not taking him live, like pretty much ever. Um, we will cover him. Um, we will tell you what he says, but with context and analysis and not just in real time where it's impossible on the radio to, to fact check as fast as he's telling things that are not true. But we have those conversations, I think they have significantly more value if we tell you, this is where we've landed, you can agree or disagree with how we're covering it, but this is, we're thinking really deeply on it and trying to do better. When you come home from the day all these years, like do you have any juice left for your people? Or are you like, I have got to lay down or <laughs> have a giant glass of tequila? <laughs> 
giant glasses of tequila have been deployed. <laughs> More than one moment since 2016. Um, yeah, no, I, it has been a relief, I will say, to go back to the newsroom post-pandemic, I guess that's where we yeah. are, post-pandemic, instead of just walking downstairs, um, you know, after doing all of the work and coming down and, you know, no one has thought about, to our earlier conversation, no one has unloaded the dishwasher, thought about dinner, walked the dog or anything else. And you think, really, guys, mm -hmm. like, I just, I just anchored an election up here. Could y'all like <laughs> order the pizza? How about some pizza? Let's see, we've got one right here. I'll hand it to you when I'm done. Oh, sorry. Hi. hi, I'm Daniela. I'm, for the audience who doesn't know, I'm one of James's really good friends Daniela. from home. Hi. Um, and just to your question about if your kids are proud, I would like to attest that he is very proud. <laughs> Just a quick question. When you come home from, you know, covering these stories about these women with such moving anecdotes about their children, how does that affect your relationship with your kids? And, like, do you come home and have this realization about, you know, how you should be interacting with them? Yeah. Um, first of all, it's so nice to see you. Um, James told me you were coming tonight and to watch for you, so thank you. Um, and you've just totally made my day by saying I'm proud. Thank you. Um, it's funny. I mean, my conversation with the boys, of course, has shifted um, over the years. When they were very little, I tell a story in the book about, you know, I, I was going off on a big reporting assignment in Pakistan, and I was going to be gone for two weeks, and they were toddlers, and um, I made this big pink construction paper chart with a picture of me smiling, <laughs> and there was a little box for every day that I'd be away, and little messages like, you know, halfway there, mommy will be home soon, mommy loves you, and I thought they could X off each day and like count down the days till I was home. <laughs> and um, uh -oh. <laughs> I don't think they ever looked at it. <laughs> And I say that based on, I, I had forgotten about this completely, but I came upon the chart, it was in a file drawer, one of these like personal, you know, keep for later files, mm -hmm. and I was looking through it for something else and happened upon it, and the boxes are all checked with these very neat squares. I'm like, that is not what a three-year-old would have done. That yeah. was like, either my husband or the nanny going in and like doing I thought you were gonna say it was you, like you know sometimes you, you write something on your to-do list that you've already done and then you cross it off. Take shower. Yes, exactly. Um, I mean, my conversations with James now, he's 19, um, before I went to Ukraine. He, for the first time, this was interesting, I think, you know, inevitably, kids, you think your parents are inevitable. Are, are invincible, um, you know, that the sun and the moon revolves around. It doesn't, it didn't kind of occur to me when I was kids that, when I was a kid, that something could happen to my parents. And I think, you know, for my kids, that's been true. And I don't remember the James, James or Alexander ever worrying about, you know, my safety when I was heading off to Afghanistan or Iran or wherever. Um, but before Ukraine, James was very fixated on where exactly are you gonna be, what's the itinerary, and what's the exit strategy? Mm. And I pushed him on this, and he just watched Argo, the Ben Affleck movie, <laughs> which, as you know, is, you know, there's quite a disastrous exit strategy in that movie, but so he's thinking hard on this, and it was, um, it was funny, because I made it out 
just a few days before you know the airport shut down and there was no exit strategy other than you know a very harrowing train ride across the country um, so I guess the answer is you know my my conversations with the boys have deepened and, and changed and they now they do seem genuinely curious in some of the interviews that I do whereas for years I would come home and you know tell them something I thought they'd be excited about. You know, I guess I just interviewed Matt Damon today, and they're like, great. Yeah. What's for dinner? Yeah. <laughs> they, okay. Or who's Matt Damon? They're so young. <laughs> yeah, Steph Curry, though, he, they're, they're excited uh -huh. about that one. I'm going to float you some questions yeah. for Steph. Okay. Uh, should we do one over here? I, uh, oh, hi. Sorry. Um, so I came a little late, so I apologize if I missed this. I love how you keep referring back to your 25-year-old self. The question I have is, as you were navigating all of those years and balancing the professional you wanted to be and the mom you wanted to be, and probably the deep worry sometimes that you might have felt about how you were making professional choices, now that your kiddos are where they are and you are where you are, is there any advice that you would have given to you would give to your younger mom self now about how to manage the worry when you are making those professional choices? I so I will share. I'm hard of hearing. In fact, deaf, and I'm. That was a little hard to hear. Would you repeat for me? If you were to advise your 25 year old self about making these choices yeah. that you've had to make all along, what would you say? Yeah. Your young mom self. Yeah. Sorry. And managing the work. The, the worry. Yeah, I did a bad job of. Thank <laughs> you. Help us out here. I'm fired. <laughs> um, I'll answer that in two ways. The short one is that, you know, whether you're a journalist or a parent or you know what any whether you have anything in common with my story, I think we all have had the experience of needing to be in two places at once and that not being possible and and I have always in my line of work when there was some assignment I really wanted to do and it inevitably was completely in conflict with you know the critical you know birthday party of one of my kids or something where I was trying to struggling to make a decision I've always circled back to there are a lot of journalists in the world who could go cover that story. There will be more stories. There's only one person in this world who can be mom to my kids, and they're not gonna be kids for forever. And when you think about it on that level, it becomes really simple. And I have always had that rule and always wrestled with it, and I guess for starters, I would go back and tell my younger self, just pay attention to that. Like, it's, it, in some ways, it is that easy. It's that basic. The other thing I would say, and I tell a story in the book that's kind of the classic grass is always greener. Um, as I say, I have on-ramped, off-ramped, done every permutation of working, not working outside the home, etc. Um, one of those moments, long moments, was a full year that I took unpaid away from NPR because my younger son Needed, he wasn't talking. He was two, and he needed speech therapy, and um, he needed it like every day for two hours a day, or hour a day, two hours a day. Felt like five hours a day. I can't remember. Um, but I just thought I can't delegate that to the nanny, and I took a year, and 
I can look back now and say, I took a year. NPR did not hold my job. They gave away my desk and my pass and my laptop. And it wasn't actually clear that I would be able to go back. And um, I was pushing my son in a stroller on one of those days to the park, and I ran into a competitor who had my beat at another big news organization. And um, she looked the same as she always did in this like great suit with heels and her hair was done. And I was wearing, <laughs> speaking of Gap jeans, like the oldest, saggiest Gap jeans and clogs. And I had applesauce in my hair, which I distinctly <laughs> remember. Not that that was unusual in those days, but I, I had a clot of applesauce in my hair. Anyway, we talked for a few minutes. She didn't recognize me when she saw me. <laughs> um, oh, ouch. And then she was like, it's so great to see you, lovely to see you. I'll tell everyone I saw you. I have an interview at the White House. I got to go. And she raises her hand and gets in a taxi and speeds off. And I wish I could tell you that I wandered off to the park with my son, blissfully at peace with my life choices. But I felt like I'd been stabbed in the heart. <laughs> like just, um, because of what she represented, which is everything I thought I had was going to go do. I was going to go have this great career and nail it and go to the White House in my killer suit and do the interview. And I thought she didn't even recognize me. Do I even recognize myself at this point? The coda to the story is when I ran into her again, whatever it was, a year or two later, I had gone back. Um, they had given away my beat as national security correspondent, but I had taken over the Pentagon beat. I ran into her again outside a wine bar on 14th Street, and she recognized me. And we chatted for a few minutes, you know, I small talk. I didn't know her that well. And when we turned to go our separate ways, she said, hang on, hang on. I need you to know I cried the whole day after I ran into you. And I was like, why? Because you had it all. Like you had it nailed. She had a toddler as well. Because you looked so bad. <laughs> <laughs> what she said was, you looked so happy. And you and your son, you were pushing your son in the stroller, headed to the park, and I had just dropped my toddler at daycare, and I'm stuffed into Spanx, going off to this interview that, like, it was off the record, and I didn't even, like, didn't even make any news, and I was paying a stranger to take my baby mm -hmm. to the park that day. And I thought, what am I even doing with my life? And I looked at her and said, huh. Like, I thought I'd thrown away my career. That's what I saw when I looked at you. And she said, you were singing. And I've thought of that so many times. Um, if I could just have seen what she saw. She saw this really happy mom doing great, headed to the park on a pretty day with her kid singing to him. Mm. If I could have just seen what she saw. And if she could have seen what I was looking at. Um, that's a long way to answer the question, but it's true. A long and forgettable answer. I'm going to leave you with this lovely audience and ask you to read us off. Mary okay. Louise Kelly. Um, I'm going to read something very short, just a couple of pages, and then release you to the bar. But this is, um, we've actually teed this up pretty well. This is from a chapter about two-thirds of the way through, through the book titled, That Was Vladimir Putin's Fault. 
Um, I was, I'm in Ukraine, and I, I've just shared with y'all a little bit of how much I love and respect my mom, and how much she has mattered to all of these stories, and also about how one of my revelations in the book was how happy and proud I am at the choices I have made and how much it matters to have a mom doing the work that I do. So here's, this is us, we were in, um, in eastern Ukraine, uh, right up against the Russian border. Um, and here's what I wrote. Right before we board the sleeper train west, back toward Kiev, and the interviews that await us there the next morning, a text arrives from mom, who was home in DC taking care of my boys so I could be in Ukraine. I know that mom is writing because she's worried. She wants to make sure that I'm safe, that I haven't lost my coat again, that I'm on my way back to the relative safety of the capital. She writes none of this. I made a huge pot of spaghetti sauce, she reports. There's some in the freezer for the boys on another day. It's very cold here. The snow hasn't melted. Shadow, the dog, and Nick are watching TV together. We miss you, but we're doing okay. I read between the lines. I have been corresponding with my mother for a lifetime, and in what might seem a simple status update, I detect several subtexts. Yes, this is a gentle nudge to check in. It's also a quiet assertion of competence. My mother would like for me to know that she is doing splendidly, that she is running my house with the grace and efficiency from which both I and the military commanders on the front lines that I have just left behind might learn much. <laughs> But what I also read, and maybe I'm just saying what I need to see, is encouragement and permission. You have chosen such a different life than I did, she is writing. Go live it, go do your thing. James and Alexander are fine, they are happy, their bellies are full of spaghetti. I've got this, you're free to go get them. A mother's love is such a powerful force. It can wire courage across thousands of miles straight into a war zone. If you're very lucky, it can score you a Bernadoodle or a guinea pig. That night, I lie on my narrow berth in the tiny compartment I'm sharing with my producer, swaying as the train wheels rumble underneath. Strange towns whip past in the dark. I close my eyes and try to sleep. I'm thinking of all the people we have met on this trip, of how they have trusted us with their stories, of how to write my report tomorrow in a way that is true and fair and does them justice. And I'm thinking of my mother and how to pay it forward. Mary Louise Kelly is co-host of All Things Considered, NPR's evening news magazine. Previously, she was a national security correspondent for NPR. She's the author of two novels, Anonymous Sources and The Bullet, and a memoir, It Goes So Fast, The Year of No Do-Overs. Kelly Corrigan is the host of the podcast and NPR show, Kelly Corrigan Wonders, and the PBS show, Tell Me More with Kelly Corrigan. She's the author of four memoirs and one children's book. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. 
Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.